a day or so after I got married, I thought to myself, this was a mistake. Why did I do this? Like, and Um. I called my mother and said, I made a huge mistake. And I didn't even mention Kirill and I didn't even mention what I meant. And she just knew. And she said, well, you've made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. You know, maybe, you know, you should think twice about like setting up housekeeping with someone, you know, before you know them well. And like, and she went on and on about this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, you know, and there's also talk about how no one in her family gets divorced. And so I just was like, okay, I made, I made a mistake and now, you know, I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life for it, but I have to just make the best of it. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. It's just too funny. Okay, so Joanna, I'm going to introduce you officially in a second, but you just told me that you've broken your nose three times. Can you explain? Yes. And it, <laughs> I've, I've semi-broken it more than three times, but I, as a child, um, I, oh, I think I was three. I actually fell off a ride at a, oh. a small amusement park, Sesame Place in Pennsylvania. Oh. And I landed on my face and my my nose was just kind of smashed. And (gasps) I remember this happening, but I don't remember the aftermath. And my parents later told me that, you know, we were on vacation and I had two black eyes and my nose was enormously (laughs) black and blue and swollen. And they were walking around with me and people were staring at them, like thinking that they had beaten me. (laughs) And of course I had fallen off of this, this ride. um, Uh And and so um, my my nose, you know, has never quite never quite recovered from it, and has always been kind of lopsided and a little weird. Like I have a really intensely deviated septum. Like, and my husband is always like, "Please get that fixed so you don't snore as much." And so I feel really self conscious in photos because um, I feel but like then my the nose. Other like, times, the other times you broke them. Um, the other nose, like, what were you doing? Okay, so the are you fighting someone? No, that would be so much better. Um, so the other two times were this is crazy and just embarrassing and weird. Like I was a competitive swimmer, but I am allergic to chlorine. And so I had a lot of trouble being on the swim team. And now I could probably take some kind of medication or something. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when I was doing this, you know, it was they were just kind of like tough it out. Yeah. And what would happen was that my as even when I had goggles on, my eyes would just swell up so that they were almost shut. And I looked kind of like a frog, like I'd have these huge swollen eyes. Oh, my gosh. And. But I would be trying to swim really, 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 really fast because I was a competitive swimmer. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And so I twice bashed my nose into the side, the metal side of the Olympic swimming pool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And oh, my gosh. And so, like, the second twice. time that happened, were, were your teammates or your parents like, not again? My parent, my teammates, I think, did not care or even notice. Um, I think that the coaches were like... Um, you know, what is wrong with you? My parents were like, no, like my mother, who's like kind of a 1950s housewife sort of person, you know, was really 
upset about my appearance and just felt, you know, because I had been born um, much to my mother's excitement with this tiny, like, button sort of nose. And then I turned, like, I ultimately had, like, a boxer sort of nose. <laughs> like, my um, nose also- lists off to one side, and it's just, like, weird. And That's, I, I have never noticed that in the pictures of you at all. Oh, that's so good to know. I, you know, I, I do, I do feel like it might be one of those things like that, you know, maybe I'm just much more self-conscious about it than, than Yeah, well, who wants. isn't? Who isn't yeah, more self-conscious yes. about themselves than anybody else? And also, I should mention that it's, it's interesting that you note the small button nose, because I think we need to give a little background here, because I'm Jewish, and you're Jewish, and the small button nose thing is, it is a thing. Yes. Right. Do you want to do you want to explain like or do you want me to explain? Um, Maybe you should explain and then I'll like (laughs) like, you know, like a lot of Jewish people like, you know, we can have some noses. We have some noses and, you know, like there are people in my family with noses like and I mean by like like your stereotypical, you know, maybe Jewish guy nose, you know, or like Jewish nose. And so like in my family, when me and my sister were born, everyone was sort of on nose watch to see what was going to happen. And I imagine there was a little fear in your family as well. Yeah, it's the same in my family. That's ex- that's the perfect <laughs> phrase. Like there was been on nose watch because my nose dad, watch. <laughs> my dad, you know, had he did not actually have a particularly prominent nose, um, but my mother felt that he did somehow uh-huh. um, and was concerned. And I think that she felt that in my dad's family, there were, you know, more stereotypically, in quotes, Jewish noses, like more uh-huh. sort of like, I don't know, yeah. what would you call it? Like a beaked sort of nose. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. And and I do, I feel like, you know, it's a weird thing for a Jewish person to say, right? Because, you know, we don't want other people saying that about us. And actually, it's funny because I have a little anecdote and then I'll officially introduce you, Joanna. I've never <laughs> begun an episode this way, but I'm hoping my listeners will be patient. So um, <laughs> I think it's good. Um, good to be different, do something new. So my sister has a friend from another country and um, they, they live here in the States and my sister was sort of explaining the whole Jewish nose thing. And the people were like, oh, they had no idea about it. And so then a couple of weeks later, this friend of hers, it's a couple and some kids, uh, noticed, you know, was trying to explain who someone was to my sister. And she said, no, you know, the guy with the Jewish nose. And then my sister said, oh, no. Oh, God. No, you can't You can't do that. You can't do that. She said, I can do that because I'm Jewish, but you can't do that. And so I thought that was really funny because I didn't know what I would do in that situation or if that would have, that impulse would have hit me just as strongly that like somebody else can't describe it that way. Yeah. Yes. And Ronit, it's so interesting. Like I'm just thinking about, I mean, you and I actually come from like really, really similar, almost identical backgrounds, um, Mm -hmm. which I know from having read your memoir, but. um, (laughs) And I know, I know from having read your memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but you live in the Pacific Northwest, um, where actually some of my best friends are out there now. And I just feel like Mm. it's so different out Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. um, in that, like, in the Northeast, you don't ever have to explain anything like that to anyone. Like even in Boston, where I live now, where people mm. are like, oh, it's so waspy and so Irish Catholic. It's really not like everyone. Mm. You would never even have to say the term Jewish news. People would just like 
get what you were yes. what you were talking about. You know, yes, yes, it is very different here. And I've lived here for a long time. I've lived on the West Coast now for gosh, I can't even believe it, like twenty years between LA and here. And in my closest friend group, I'll tell you, I almost have no Jewish friends, which is wild because my two best friends in college were Jewish, are Jewish. And, you know, I have a lot more of that New York sensibility in me than anyone around here, you know? So it's a strange thing. Um, Okay, Joanna, I'm going to introduce you and then we'll we'll get into the official interview. Um, Today, my guest is Joanna Rakoff. She's the author of the best-selling novel, A Fortunate Age, winner of the Goldberg Prize for Fiction and the L Reader's Prize and the international bestseller, My Salinger Year, which has been published in 20 countries and recently adapted into a feature film starring Sigourney Weaver and Margaret Qualley. She has written frequently for the New York Times, Vogue, the Los Angeles Times, and many other publications. Welcome officially, Joanna. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I am I'm so, so happy to be you're here. here. Yes, and you know, it's interesting because I kind of knew who the guy was in my Salinger year that you kept talking about as your college boyfriend, but I wasn't sure if that's the story that you wanted to bring with, you know, to the story to the episode today. And now I know because we did a little bit of a pre-interview, but I, I guess the, it, there's so much to your story that I would like to cover. So let's first talk about my Salinger year, which I just read and it's been out for a little bit. So well received and so great and such a slice of what life was like in the 90s, just as the internet was starting to become something we all used and in New York and being young and in your 20s. So can you talk a little bit about when you knew you wanted to write the book? Yeah. So the real truth is that I never knew I wanted to write the book. Um, (laughs) I, the idea for the book was presented to me. Um, So I will make a long story as short as humanly possible. Um, Basically, I um, really thought of myself as a writer of fiction, you know, a novelist. um, And I worked as a journalist, um, like in like a journalist light, you know, as in Uh I didn't do a lot of like crime reporting or political reporting. I was sort of like an arts journalist and I do... I wrote for a section of the New York Times called the city section, like a kind of metropolitan section a lot. I was a stringer for them. And mm-hmm. so I worked as a journalist and I really was doing that to support my my life as a novelist. I worked on my first novel for many years and it's sort of like a big epic novel. Um, and while I was trying to support myself as a journalist, um, I went into a meeting in a magazine one day with a whole bunch of like really carefully researched ideas for, you know, long form reported pieces um, about things that were not me. And Mm. at the end of that meeting, um, something like possessed me. And I said, so I presented these three big ideas, you know, and we're like, here are my sources. Here's how long it Mm. would take. Here's the, here's what the piece would cover, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I said, Or, you know, I could write a personal essay about answering J.D. Salinger's fan mail. And there were three editors in the room, all men, of course, because this was like (laughs) the early aughts. And at that time, unless you went into an editorial meeting at a women's magazine, all the editors that you met with were men. And their Mm. jaws dropped open. And Mm -hmm. they all kind of looked at each other. And they basically said, you know, write that. That's what we want you to write. We'll be in touch about word count and get you a contract. And I 
I left the office and thought, you know, what have I done? Because I was not a writer of personal essays. Like I had written Mm. a couple of very sort of like breezy, lightweight personal essays um, early in my time as a journalist. And, you know, that had just kind of struck me. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I really did not love memoir. I actually loved reading personal essays. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. I love Joan Didion, like everyone. And I love the writer Megan Daum. Um, mm-hmm. I loved her first essays, but I didn't, I didn't really write them. And so anyway, I was given a contract for 800 words. I ended up writing 8,000 words. Wow. Um, yes. And luckily the magazine. You were aware that the word count was growing, right? But did you just decide, let me just give them everything? Yeah, I did. I mean, basically what happened was I sort of became possessed you know I <laughs> I at first you know had this sick feeling of like why did I do this why did I sign this contract I don't know how to shape this essay I don't know what I'm doing I don't want to write about myself I just didn't want to write about myself and um and then um I woke up early one morning and the whole first section of that essay came to me and I wrote it out and just the opening section was about a thousand words. And so I actually wrote to the magazine and said, you know, I think this is going to be a longer piece. Can I send you this opening section? And I sent it to them and they said, whoa, this is great. Just keep going. It doesn't, we don't care how long it is. Just write it until it's done and send it to us. So I did. And that essay ended up getting a lot of attention. Um, I was very naive. You know, I, I somehow, I, I just, had sort of underestimated the extent to which people were interested in basically, you know, anyone who had known Salinger at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Mm -hmm. the the essay got a lot of attention and I started... Where was it first published? So it was first published in a magazine that no longer exists um, called Book that was owned Mm -hmm. by Barnes and Noble. And it was a glossy Mm -hmm. magazine about books. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was mainly a book critic um, and like a sort of literary journalist at the time. And so they had called me in and basically said, do you want to write for us? Mm-hmm. Um, they had actually just launched and they had a lot of money. And so I, as a freelance writer, was like, yes, I would like mm-hmm. that filthy Barnes and Noble lucre yeah. um, so that I can pay my rent. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then of course they eventually realized like, wait, no one wants a glossy magazine just about books. <laughs> <laughs> and they went out of business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, it really was like super, super like, you know, glamorous photos of like, I don't know, like, this is a bad example, but like Jonathan Franzen, you know, on the cover. And, and like, this is not what people want. So I don't think that's like a super bad example. It's kind of a nuanced example. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So go on, please. Okay. So end of the story is that at that time, so this is a long time ago. This was in 2003. Um, I was you know, I was interviewed for like the New York Post and the LA Times and all sorts of newspapers. Um, I and I was kind of bombarded with calls and emails from mm-hmm. editors and agents asking me to turn this into a book. Um, I already had an agent, so, you know, I just didn't respond to those. But I and I went to my agent and said, you know, all these people are asking me to turn this into a book. Um should I? And she said, no, absolutely not. You don't want to be known as the Salinger girl. You know, you're working on this novel. Mm. Just stay the course, finish the novel. Interesting. So, so interesting what advice does, right? And so, okay. So 
I sort of put it behind me. And over the years, you know, I would get calls from editors and agents, you know, pretty regularly, like, you know, it dwindled, but it would even, you know, even up until like, I don't know, 2008, 2009, I was getting calls from people saying, you know, I was in my friend's country house and they had this old issue of book in the bathroom and I read your essay and do you want to turn this into a book? And I'd be like, no. And, And so then my novel came out in 2009 and about six months later, Salinger died and I you know, despite my agent saying, like, you don't want to be known as the Salinger girl, I was a little bit known as the Salinger girl because I had written mm. this essay that had gotten mm-hmm. pretty, had a pretty wide readership. So, uh, you know, magazines and also like NPR shows and what have you called me and said, could you write something about Salinger? So I wrote a couple more essays. I was on a bunch of radio shows. And one of those essays um, for Slate led, um, the BBC to call me and say, would, would you turn this into a full length radio documentary for us? Mm. We'll, we'll pair you with a producer who can, you know, produce your interviews and whatever. And, um, I love radio and I had actually produced a podcast at the magazine I had worked at and was really excited about the idea of, of just making like a long, a long radio piece. So I did mm-hmm. it. And, um, and it involved things like, for instance, hiring a private detective to track oh, wow. down the there's a a sort of character semi-character in my Salinger year who I call the boy from Winston-Salem. And I was able to find him and interview him. I remember, him. I remember him, yes. Yes. And so that was really fun and interesting. So okay, so the end of the story is that the script for this radio documentary was sent so the BBC has an imprint at of Random House at Random House UK and mm. they um BBC Radio 4 sent them my script because I they thought that it might make a good book. Mm. And they did indeed so Random House UK did indeed feel this way and they called me and said, Do you want to turn this into a book? And at this point I thought like, you know, Dozens of people have now said to me, you should turn this into a book. Like, like literally, who does that happen to? I mean, I guess it does happen to a handful of writers, but that's sort of the dream. I guess. Yes. And I mean, I as a as a journalist and a person who's kind of like been in the media world, like I've worked at different magazines over the years. And so many of my friends are magazine writers and newspaper editors and whatever. And I have a, a bunch of friends who have turned magazine articles into books you know but they're usually Uh more sensational stories Uh you know and but the thing is that I think part of the reason that I was reluctant to do it and the reason when my agent said don't do it I was really able to sort of say okay is because um I've seen that a lot of those books are bad like (laughs) like Mm -hmm. a lot of books Mm. that come from particularly personal essays, you read them and you think, you know, this was a great personal essay, but Mm. this writer said everything she had to say in the essay and the rest of the book just feels like filler. Yeah, it might be like when, well, this is maybe a bad example, but like there's maybe a really good movie and then they do a spinoff TV series and you're like, eh, you kind of explored this already. We don't really need to do this. Yeah, it's a similar thing. I mean, obviously Buffy the Vampire Slayer being the obvious, like, yeah 
like re, what would you say like refutation of that but so yeah. anyway so i i was like okay you know there must be something to this everyone is saying this I talked to my agent about it and we, again, were like, she was like, ah, you know, but you're working on a new novel. I don't know, you know, and eventually this editor got an audience with her, like, which was actually quite hard to do because she's sort of a scary lady. And he convinced her that I should do it. And so she called me and she said, you know, he's right. Like he showed me what the story would be. I get it. And you should do it. There's a story here. I think this could be a great book. I actually said, no, I don't think I should do it. You know, I'm not a memoir writer. And she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Take two weeks, try to write the first 20 pages and just see what happens. Mm, and if, uh-huh. if you sit down and you really feel like I, I don't want to do this, there, I have nothing more to say, we'll let it go. If you sit down and you feel like this is a book, we'll pursue it. So we did. Um, I we I mean, I did. I took mm-hmm. two weeks. And it was really at the end of that two weeks that I the first sort of 20 pages of the book came to me while taking a run along the High Line. And I sent them to her and she was like, yes, that's how I came to write it. So I was kind of strong armed into writing it. Basically. Mm, yeah, it didn't come now. It wasn't some project you were championing for years and hoping someone would look at it. It's sort of the opposite. No. And, and so how long did it take you to, I don't know, I don't know if we can even use these words, quote, finish, finish the draft that you were satisfied with? Um, well, I guess like after that initial conversation, I should say like after I sent her those 20 pages, I then kind of took them and turned them into a proposal, which mm. um, she sold. And then um, I signed a contract for it. And then like basically quite literally immediately threw up. It turned out that I had a stomach <laughs> virus, that I had the norovirus, <laughs> but there was something really metaphorical about it, you know, because I, I, I was terrified and I... I actually, like, a few months later, I saw Joan Didion speak at Symphony Space about um, her new book at that time. And she was talking, like, her book about her daughter's death. And Mm. she was interviewed by her nephew, Griffin Dunn, who was asking her about it. And they were laughing about how she had said, you know, for the first year after she signed the contract, I can't write this book. I'm going to have to give back the advance. And he kept laughing. He was like, you say that with every book. Mm, And it was, and I thought, oh God. Okay. So Joan Didion felt this way too, Mm -hmm. because I would sit down every day to work on it and be like, I can't write this book. I don't know what I'm doing. And so for the first year after I signed the contract, I was kind of just writing knowing that what I was writing was not going to be in the book. Like I knew it wasn't working. I knew it wasn't good. I, it's not that it wasn't good. It just, I didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. And, you know, I was sort of avoiding starting at the beginning. And I did, during that time, I did a massive amount of research. So I interviewed everyone I worked with. I spent hours and hours and hours at the public library, doing all sorts of Salinger research. You know, I interviewed Salinger's biographers and just everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I would say, this is so crazy and like sort of embarrassing, but I would say that maybe like a year and a few months after I signed the contract, like long after the book was actually due, um, I, I, did something that I'd never done before. I'm a very private writer. And I actually was like, 
I need to have some kind of support here. So I formed a tiny writing group. Um, it was me and three other people who were all trying to finish books. One other person was on deadline for a memoir. And we basically just turned in a chunk of pages every week. Um, mm -hmm. And so through doing that, I wrote most of the book basically in about six or seven months. Hmm. Okay. So you kind of, you kind of uh, circled the wagons for a little while and then yeah. you, you got into it. Yeah. But you know, I feel like any friends of mine who are listening to this would say like, this is such classic me because um. I have this tendency, you know, every, every writer has a different way of working. And so like, I'm in a writer's group now, for instance, where two of the people in it like subscribe to the sort of like shitty first draft sort of thing. And one of them is a person who outlines her books really intensely and they both mm. write drafts, you know, where the language is very sort of workmanlike and they're just kind of trying to get it down and figure out what they have. And, and they are also both like very professional and they're like, I'm going to write a thousand words a day. And so that is not me. <laughs> I am mm. not that person. So you know, I'm a person who instead, I think, has to work it all out in my head. And then once I sit down to write, the actual writing time can be quite short. And so mm -hmm. I do this with articles and reviews, too. Like I, my last review, I write reviews a lot for The Times. And my last review, I was really kind of torturing myself over and actually my last two reviews. And then I sat down and it took me less than an hour to write the entire thing and turned wow, it in. Wow, that's so, so interesting. So you're you're sort of a processor. You you process it on the front end and, and you work a lot of it out before you get it out on the page. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then it's very efficient once you do. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. It's a segue here because I want to ask you. So, so the story, the story that you know we're focusing on for, and then everything changed, has to very much do with your personal life. And I think that uh, we should probably s let everyone know that um, the, um, a minor character or a somewhat minor character in my Salinger year, who we never personally meet in the book, ends up being a pivotal person in your life now. So I guess, how do you want to tell this story? How do you want to talk about how you ended up with, with your current partner? That's a good question. Um, well, maybe I'll explain a little bit about his role in the book um, mm -hmm. and in and the film version. Um, yes, and the parallel I was wanting to make was that this is, this is someone who you didn't see for a really long time. And then when you did, it all happened. And I'm thinking a little bit about your process with writing and trying yeah. to make a parallel, which is like, you were working on it, you were working on it, you were working on it. And then when you knew, boom, you knew. Yes, you're so right. I mean, I like maybe there's some sort of astrological explanation for this um, <laughs> or something, but I don't know anything about astrology. Um, I have friends that do, so maybe they could explain it. But I think that that is the way I function in life so often, you know, even with really tiny things, like, I don't even know what, like, I want to try making this really complicated 
dish for dinner and I think about it and I think about it and I slowly collect all the ingredients, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and then months later, I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to make this really, really like this day long French stew. I'm ready to do it now. (laughs) And then I just wake up and do it without telling anyone. And then it, then it exists and I've done it. Um, and, um, so yeah okay so Kirill is my husband um mm-hmm. so now that's a huge spoiler but <laughs> <laughs> but basically um this a little bit ties into why I had trouble writing the book um which maybe we can talk about later but in the book um I refer to him only as my college boyfriend that he has no name in the book and um the way you meet him in the book is um he is sort of off stage, as Ronit said, as you said, Ronit. He um, mm-hmm. he is in Berkeley, and I am in New York. And I eventually explain that I had intended to move out to Berkeley with him, or to join him in Berkeley. But I went out to visit him and just kind of basically freaked out and returned mm-hmm. to New York and took this job that is chronicled in my Salinger year, which is basically... Can you about- talk about what made you freak out as far as you understand it now? Yeah. So many years later? So, so at the time, I, don't, I didn't really understand why I freaked out. I just, I was in Berkeley and I felt weird and kind of maybe a little bit smothered and just uneasy the whole time Mm -hmm. I was there and it made no sense because I actually love the Bay Area I love California in general but my whole family is in the Bay Area my parents were about to move out there I'd spent Mm. I knew this the area way better than Kirill did because I'd spent a lot of my childhood there and so it just made no sense I was so excited to do this and then I got there and was like I can't be here you know Mm. I almost had like a you know, fight or flight response. Mm. And I said, you know, I'm going to go back to New York and, you know, just kind and of... And you were about uh, 20... How old were you at I was this 23. Point? So I was very mm-hmm. young. Um, mm-hmm. Though now I meet 23-year-olds and they seem, you know, like little business people. But I was... Like, for, <laughs> for our generation, like, 23 was like, you were still like a homunculus. So... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I went back to New York and I kind of just delayed going out to Berkeley. And... Kirill understood because I had sort of vaguely valid reasons like I got a job as a PA on a big Hollywood film and he knew you know that I love film and I was considering going into film at the time so he was like of course stay and do this job and then I got this job at this literary agency working for Salinger's agent and he was like of course you know do the job for a little bit I think he was thinking I would do it for a month or two and then come out there but I did not so I didn't I so this was sort of one of the great I don't I don't know what the word is like kind of shames of my life Mm. I was in love with Kirill and I loved him he was you know my best friend I was incredibly attracted to him he was the person who I could talk about anything with and I really did believe that he kind of was you know to the extent that I believed in these things, which I believe in them now, but I didn't believe in them as much then. Like, I felt like he kind of was my Bashir or my soulmate. Mm-hmm. Um, that he under- did you did you have a history of relationships in high school? Did you did you come to partnerships easily or were they complicated for you? Um, it was a mix. You know, I in high school, I had 
a boyfriend for, I'm trying to think how long, you know, I think a couple of years we broke up once and got back together, who honestly was wonderful. And I did truly love him. He was just, he was just great um, Mm. and is great. And I, you know, and we had a a pretty good relationship. We didn't have like a weird, tortured, difficult relationship Mm. at all. But I had also, you know, had like typical teenage sort of things where I dated bad terrible people and in college you know similar thing I had before Kirill and I met on the first day of college and we were very close friends before we became involved and you know I had dated a string of people you know who were I was not in love with at all you know and nothing terrible or horribly complicated maybe just one or two terrible or horribly complicated things mm-hmm. but nothing traumatic you know mm-hmm. um and so now looking back on it on why I couldn't go to Berkeley it's still you know I, I think that it had something to do with the fact that I wanted to be a writer um I, or I wanted to write I shouldn't even say I wanted to be a writer I wanted to write um, and I kind of needed to be alone to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was with Kirill, I I somehow felt like subsumed by him. Um, he had he had actually lived with me in London for half of the time. I was I had spent a year in London doing a master's in English literature and. I went out on my own and he joined me halfway through the year. And in the first sort of few months that I was there without him, I had no trouble concentrating. My grades were great. Everything was great. I was doing all sorts of things. You know, I acted in a play, I, you know, and I was supposed to be directing a play. And, and he got there and suddenly we were living in this tiny, tiny one room apartment. I couldn't think, I couldn't focus. I couldn't even write my papers for school. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I remember just because I had been, you know, a kind of star student prior to this, I, um, I was like, what is wrong with me? This is so strange. It was as if my brain had kind of left my body and I, Mm -hmm. I just couldn't, I couldn't work. I tried working at the library. I tried doing everything, but I, so I eventually had to write all my papers. He he left London and moved, went back home to kind of set things up in Berkeley where he was starting a doctoral program. And he left. And once I was by myself, suddenly like everything flew out of me and I wrote all my papers then oh. and was able to work and was writing poems and stories and all sorts of things. And I couldn't figure this out or understand what it was. And I, I don't know if it, is simply that, you know, Kirill is a very quiet person. He's much more kind of quiet and introverted than am I, ostensibly. But he somehow, maybe in some ways, has a stronger personality than I do. And when I was with him, I just felt like his needs kind of overtook my own needs in all ways. Mm-hmm. And I... I don't completely know why. I don't know if this had something to do with, you know, gender roles and my being raised by in a very, very traditional family. Um, I just don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. 
But so it's almost like you knew how wonderful he was and what a good person he was and how much you loved him. But you also had a sense that you couldn't do what you needed to do with him. And there was nothing he was doing wrong necessarily. It's just that the way you were with him wasn't conducive to your creative life at that point. Exactly. That's exactly it. I think there's one other element of it as well, which is that I think he, you know, he was in Berkeley, you know, in this doctoral program, he's a composer and he had this whole world of friends who were musicians, composers, musicologists. And I, you know, knew no one there. And I'm a pretty social person, you know, who usually has a kind of tight group of friends. Um, and it was very strange for me to be there and have no network or scaffolding at all and just accept him. And I mm -hmm. think it made me feel kind of strange and lonely. Mm -hmm. um, and I just- It was longed. scary. Maybe it was really scary for yes, you. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. And I longed for New York where I knew a million people and, <laughs> you know, where I knew everyone and like, and had like a whole world there. So what I'm curious about is, you know, we're going to spend a substantial amount of time in, in the last part of the interview talking about how you uh, got back with him and how you are now. But can you just uh, skip jump us to how you met? you know, when you decided to just get married to the man you did, you know, begin a life with? Yeah, um, it's a, a weird, <laughs> weird story looking back on it. Um, so after, you know, after I left Berkeley, I, um, I was in New York, I worked in publishing as detailed in my salendar <laughs> year. Um, and then I actually, this is not mentioned in my salendar year, but I I was actually in a doctoral program in literature while I was working at this agency. Eventually, I left the agency, went to work for another agent. And at the same time, um, this is I seem to have too many stories like this in my life. I feel hyper aware of this, but I had, <laughs> I had started publishing poems in magazines just in a very minor way. I had a friend, a high school friend, who was kind of an heiress. She was quite wealthy and did not work and lived in a giant... Um, I just have to pause there and, and quote back to you that you just said kind of an heiress, which is like really <laughs> funny, but go ahead. I think I wasn't... At, this is one of those things where at the time I was... I wasn't quite aware of the extent, the magnitude of her wealth, you know? Uh -huh. And... Um, <laughs> and and so she lived alone in this very beautiful and huge apartment on the Upper West Side with her giant Great Dane who had some, his name was like Thor or something. <laughs> and she wanted to be a poet and was writing poetry. Um, and she said to me one day, you know, you and I should apply to Columbia's MFA program in poetry. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I don't really believe in MFA programs. You know, I feel like you either learn how, know how to write or you don't. And she was like, well, I think you're being really naive about this because, you know, an MFA program can propel you. It's not just about learning to write. It's about, you know, professional, I don't know, networking. I don't know, whatever she said. And I was like, yeah, that makes me want to do it even less. And, <laughs> um, and so she actually, if you can believe this, filled out an application for me 
and brought it to me. So she was a person who anyone who's listening to this from New York will understand this. Like she basically never went below, I want to say like 63rd Street or maybe like 59th Street. She came Mm -hmm. to my apartment in Williamsburg, which now is like a very you know I don't know there's like a Chipotle there and whatever but at the time it was like a really fringe neighborhood that had like one Thai restaurant and like a lot of like old Polish bars Mm -hmm. she came there she was clearly terrified and was like I feel (laughs) I typed this out for you you know I even had she had poems of mine she was like I have your writing sample you just need to sign it and like figure out the that is too funny that she had your writing sample I know I know so I had what I've left out because it's not that important is that I had actually lived with her for a little bit So she had a bunch of my stuff there. She had poems of mine. And she was like, you need to sign this and you need to fill out a couple other things. And I was like, "Okay, but I don't have a typewriter. And she was like, I know you have one at your office. And we're getting on the train and we're going. So she we got on the train. This was a Saturday. And she we went up to my office, the office that I write about in my Salinger year. And she went, I I had, we all, everyone in the office had keys to it so we could work late or come in early. Mm -hmm. So I went into the office, I typed the things I needed to type and she walked me to the post office to, no, I used the postal meter um, (laughs) in my office and she walked me over to the post office to like hand deliver it to the, the postman. And so a month or two later, I found out that I got in and my friend did not actually, and I got a fellowship. And so I went to Columbia to do um, an MFA in poetry and was it's a a very, very small program. There are 12 people in it. um, And I met, you know, my future husband on the first day of school, basically, and didn't really pay that much attention to him because he was on the quiet side and kind of aloof and. I don't know, just didn't, I wasn't sort of particularly interested or intrigued by him. I sort of had a group of friends um, Mm -hmm. and I knew a lot of people in the program already. Someone I went to Oberlin with was already there. And I I just had a whole world there already because of being kind of a New Yorker. So, um, so a friend of mine had a crush on this guy, this man in my program who I would eventually marry and I set her up with him and through setting her up with him got to know him a little bit better and like he would sometimes invite himself along when I went out with groups of friends and sometime in the spring he asked me to go to a party with him um, in Williamsburg and I said sure and I went to this party and at the party he got down on one knee took off a ring handed it to me and said, um, you know, I've been in love with you since the first day of school. I fell in love with you just from hearing your voice, reading a poem. Like you're the, everyone knows you're the most talented person in our class. And, you know, you remind me of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and, you know, you're a genius and like, I well, I'm going to marry you. And I was like, what? And <laughs> and he was like, take this and ring. nobody had told you or tipped you off or said, you know, he's always looking at you with love in his eyes. And he no. seems to really be different. Like nothing. No, no, no type of sign. No. And I mean, my friend that I had set him up with, Emily, um, had said to me, like, little. she had said little things like, I think he kind of likes you. Like, because <laughs> she went out to dinner with him and she was like, all, you know, he really 
you know, wanted to talk about you the whole time. But I, oh, no. I, I actually Which is so funny because now so many decades later, we're all so much wiser and know what that means. But back then you could try to manipulate it and think, oh, no, I don't think so. It's fine. It's fine. It might work out. But now we all know if someone is spending a really long time talking about somebody else, they probably want to be with them. Totally. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I honestly thought like and this seems sort of vaguely realistic, like I thought, you know, they both know me. So I'm the only thing like and they they sort of dated a little bit, but they really did not. Did They had like no nothing in common, no chemistry, you know, mm-hmm. and she like a minute after this started dating the guy who she would eventually marry, who she's still married to, who's a wonderful mm-hmm. novelist. And um, mm-hmm. and they just had they just were totally wrong for each other. And mm-hmm. I, I just thought to myself, like, I knew this wasn't going to work. They have nothing to talk about. So they were just talking about me. You know, Mm -hmm. because they have nothing else in common at all. So I was really kind of flabbergasted by this. And like, I guess I, you know, this would be the moment to say, like, reader, I married him. So you marry this guy. Yep. And and you feel like, okay, I'm set up. I, I did. I'm doing my adult life. Yes, basically. Yeah. And I I think I thought this guy, my former husband, you know, was he had the kind of like looks of a 1940s movie star. You know, he was like very tall and kind of like square jawed and handsome in like a kind of Cary Grant sort of way. Mm -hmm. My mother loved him. Um, My mother met him before this whole weird engagement thing um, because he just in a sort of random way helped me move some stuff from my parents house um, as like a favor to me and when I think he was still dating my friend and I think I his behavior toward me kind of accorded with my very juvenile adolescent ideas about what it meant for someone to be in love with you Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I thought, like, this is what Kirill never did. Like, Kirill was not, like, didn't bring me flowers or, like, there was no grand gesture ever. You know, there was no, like, I've made us reservations at this amazing restaurant or I've bought you tickets to your favorite play. There was nothing mm-hmm. like it. He was, that was not who he was. Mm-hmm. And, Evan, my former husband, that is who he was. Like, he was all about the grand romantic gesture. And I I think I was just kind of swept up in all this. Um, mm-hmm. Probably people who are not 20 years old out there listening to this are thinking, this all kind of sounds like a sign of, like, mental instability to, like, propose to someone <laughs> you've never even had a conversation with, really. And, um, I, you know, and it... I realize that now, like if one of my kids said to me, like, oh, here's this thing happened, I would be like, that person is crazy. Run for the hills. <laughs> like, this sounds like a manic episode or like borderline personality disorder, or narcissistic personality disorder. No. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time I was thinking like, oh, this is like Ted Hughes proposing to Sylvia Plath. Like this is and he, yeah. you know, this is sort of like a grand literary romance. And I was so swept then, up in it. So then how long, so, you know, I want to know when you were writing my Salinger year, you were married to him, right? Yes, I was married to him. And the truth is that, you know, after I signed the contract and threw up, like part of what was holding me back from writing mm. the book 
was, you know, I would sit down to write and during this first year or so when I was just kind of writing in circles and at a certain point I realized quite straightforwardly that I was avoiding writing about that year, the Salinger year, because it meant writing honestly about what happened with Kirill. Mm-hmm. And like, I felt so ashamed of it. And I just also still didn't understand why I had done this. Had you compartmentalized that that whole relationship by then with Kirill? Had you sort of just decided like it was just like kind of gone and you didn't have to really look at it anymore? You know, that I had not actually. I mean, so Kirill and I stayed in touch for a lot of the many years that we were apart. Um, so at a certain point, you know, if, if anyone out there reads my Salinger year, you'll see there's a moment where in the book that, of course, happened in real life, where he eventually writes to me and, you know, also like leaves messages on my answering machine because mm-hmm. he just is trying to get a hold of me. And he basically what he was trying to say to me was, you know, I just want to be in your life. Like, I don't know what happened. I get that you don't want this, that you're not going to come out here, but you're my best friend and I miss you. So please, can I just be in your life? Can you just call me sometimes? Mm-hmm. And um, and in the film version, you know, that, that scene is in there. I wrote the screenplay for it and that scene is in there. And the first time I saw it, I just started crying hysterically um, mm-hmm. because it you know in in the film version he the Kirill character says this to the me character in person and um it just was very emotional for me to see it played out um by these two wonderful actors um so so we eventually got back in touch um during that year you know after I didn't come out to Berkeley that the year following our breakup um we emailed back and forth a lot and he was, you know, I feel like I couldn't have survived it without him. Like there was a lot of turmoil for me that year and in the year after that too. And I didn't actually talk to him about a lot of it, but I would sort of, I don't know, just kind of test the waters in terms of talking to him about what was on my mind in terms of like writing and my career more. And he just was so grounded and, just so um, kind of like far reaching in his thinking about how to live one's life, which is just sort Mm. of who he is. And we stayed in touch, you know, for- Did he get married? He eventually got married too. I mean- Was that hard when you found out that he was married, even though you were married? um, It wasn't that hard. I don't know exactly what, because I think it wasn't like he just got married out of the blue. Like there were, it was more that like there were years of my feeling tortured and unsure of what to do. Like in the first years after I got married, he was dating a a woman. Um, I mean, he dated a bunch of women, but he was dating this one particular woman kind of seriously. And I suspected he was going to marry her and I knew that he shouldn't. And I almost felt like he was marrying her, like almost not to punish me, but like partly because she was almost like my inverse and opposite that maybe like to punish himself. I don't know. And I just knew that it was a bad idea. And he did too. And he kept saying like, oh, I guess I have to marry her. And I was like, what? No, you don't. <laughs> and, but he also, you know. So a bad sign. Yes, yes. <laughs> he, yeah. and they, would, they kept breaking up and getting back together. I mean, like on their first date, 
um, I think it was their first date, one of their first dates, he was like having some sort of he's Kirill is an amazing cook. Um, and even though he actually doesn't really drink, he's an amazing bartender. And um, he was having people over for some, you know, I can't remember, like Cinco de Mayo, like something. And she was at his house and she passed out and had to be rushed to the hospital. And somehow hearing this story, I knew that there was some sort of like drug addiction, something. I don't know why. I'm mm-hmm. I'm quite mm-hmm. attuned to things like this because of things in my own family. And, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out that that was indeed the truth. And... I just was like, she has bad news. And um, and she was indeed bad news. <laughs> um, but I, I think I somehow didn't feel threatened by her because I knew that he didn't love her and wasn't in love with her. And I also, I felt somehow like, I don't know, like, like I had married this person who I knew I didn't love and wasn't in love with, but somehow I felt like, Kirill was lost to me like I like I my, I think I I'm trying to think if I mentioned this to you Rooney at, at some point but basically a day or so after I got married I thought to myself this was a mistake why did I do this like and um. I called my mother and said I made a huge mistake and I didn't even mention Kirill and I didn't even mention what I meant and she just knew and she said well You've made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. You know, maybe, you know, you should think twice about like setting up housekeeping with someone, you know, before you know them well. And like, and she went on and on about this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, you know, and there's also talk about how no one in her family gets divorced. And so I just was like, okay, I made, I made a mistake. And now, you know, I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life for it, but I have to just make the best of it. Uh-huh. And I, I, Kirill sort of tried to convince me in these early years that this wasn't the case. Like, he kept saying, like, you don't have to stay with him. Like, plenty of people get divorced. Why don't you just leave him? And I remember this one conversation we had in Central Park, actually. Um, he still lived in Berkeley, but he came to New York frequently, where he said, you know, you need to leave him. Like, he's awful. <laughs> And like, uh-huh. and well, I have to ask: Was your husband threatened at all by Kirill in your life? He was very threatened by him. Yeah, he was. And I mean, do you blame him in a way? I don't blame him. Yeah, yeah, like, right. Yeah. And do you think when you now that you're with Kirill every day of your life? Um, sorry, another spoiler. I mean, I just like I feel like every time <laughs> every time we reiterate that this has sort of a, a, like a happy ending, I feel like I'm taking away the the tension. But I just, you know, does Kirill talk about it? Like. Yeah, he knew he was sort of was was he it sounds like he was a really good friend and he had your best interest in mind. But how did he put away his own wishes and hopes and support you? Like, was there an ulterior motive? Um, that's a good question. I, I you know, I think that he really felt so. OK, let me go back. Let me back up and say um that day, that conversation that I mentioned where he was like, you have to leave him. I actually said to him, I said to Kirill, um, I would leave him to be with you, but I can't just leave him. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do this on my own. I can't, you know, I'm scared to. And he said, 
no, you can't leave him for me. You have to leave him and just be on your own for a few years. Um, mm. And he said, you know, like, we should be together, but like, you can't leave him for me. You have to just be on your own and learn to be on your own. And wow, what a guy. So wise. I know. I know. And I well, I will say, though, that I do think that he may have regretted this in later years <laughs> because if he had said to me absolutely leave him for me I will help you like you know just come to Berkeley and live with me I would have done it um oh, but I no. really I just I, I knew that I would not have the support of my parents at all yeah. um and I felt like I had nowhere to turn you know I just didn't it felt sort of beyond my capabilities to figure mm -hmm. out how to do this. I sort of felt like I was a character in an Edith Wharton novel. And if I left my marriage, I would be a failure and I would be scorned by society. This obviously sounds absurd in 2021. And it no, probably... I mean, you know, it's it's really we all have these these challenges and these obstacles that we that we feel and you know i understand that you're trying you realize like oh well this was the way i was thinking about it but there are this is a very scary thing to be alone yeah it's true it really is and to kind of face like huge legal battles i you know the thing that i haven't mentioned because i i don't really want to dwell on anything negative about my ex-husband but he was an intensely jealous person who um, you know, would get really, really angry at me and upset with me um, sometimes about like in ways that they didn't scare me like I was afraid for my life or my safety, but they just sort of shook me up like as in, you know, we'd be walking down the street and he would suddenly think that I was checking someone out like a man or a woman. Um, I am mm. straight and he would think that I was checking out a woman and get very angry at me and i would have just do you think been... that he was like his behavior certainly is not excusable but do you think he was in part acting out because some part of him understood that you were not happy with him like it just wasn't working maybe i i think it might have and, been... and again let me clarify that it was like not i'm not at all placing the blame at your feet but i wonder if he was like something doesn't feel right she doesn't feel like she's all in with me yeah i mean i think it was probably a combination of that and also just his own personality um i sure i think that he is you know a person who sometimes maybe like has trouble seeing outside of his own point of view and mm. like this he definitely sort of views the world through the lens of like betrayal and kind of assumes that people are betraying him in a way. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I felt scared for like what it would say about me too, if I left him, like, who was mm -hmm. I, this person who like, like if I did this, it would, I would be kind of confirming his beliefs that I was this bad person, you know, who was going to betray him you know right which i think highlights how complicated these decisions are yeah People, relationships and deciding what you're going to do with your life is that's some of the most complicated stuff you're ever going to contend with and by this time you know you had how many children with him so by the time um i eventually left him 
um, we had two kids who were then eight and four. Mm-hmm. So can you bring me to that that moment, um, that moment of deciding to leave and, and how that happened? I know I, I know a little bit about this, but you tell it so beautifully. Yeah. So basically, um, Kirill and I, as I said, just to make this like crystal clear, like we had been, you know, in and out of touch for years. Like we would his wife and my husband were both very threatened by us, you know? And mm. so there were periods where his wife you know, said to him, you can't be in touch with her. It's not appropriate. Like she's in love with you. You know, I don't know if she was, if she felt like that he was, I think she did feel like he was in love with me. And um, to be fair, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so she basically prohibited him from being in touch with me. My husband like not only prohibited me from being in touch with him, but he would, um, he read all my email and um, scrutinized our phone bills. And if he saw any phone number that he didn't recognize, he would research it to try to figure out who it was. And, you know, if it was Kirill. Um, And um, so he was definitely, you know, really, really kind of, looking out for (laughs) signs that I was in touch with him. Um, And so all of this, you know, just, I suppose, I don't want to say it made me miss him more as the years went by, but in some ways, like what would happen is we'd go for a while without seeing each other and then something would happen and we would be thrust in touch again. So like we went, some years without seeing each other in like around let's just say like 2007 through 2009 or 10 some around that and um then I was my first book was coming out and I had some events in Boston and I guess he was taking a walk in his neighborhood in Boston in Cambridge actually um at Central Square and he happened upon a poster with my face on it for an event I was doing. And mm-hmm. he knew at, that my husband monitored my email and my phone. And so he actually wrote to me on Facebook and said, like, I, I know we're not supposed to be in touch with each other, but um, I you know, saw that you're doing this event a block away from my house and felt I feel like I can't not come. Would it be OK if I came? So he did. And it was so good to see him. He walked into this. It was actually a, a quite large event at um, a gallery. And he got there on the later side, like, you know, right as people were getting into their seats. And, you know, I saw him and like almost passed out. And, you know, he hugged me and I felt like everything was right with the world again. And mm-hmm. so we then had a period of being, you know, kind of intensely in touch and like talking for hours. And then it all kind of came crashing down around me when, you know, my husband looked at our phone bills and saw that I had been talking to him and got very, very angry. And but we found ways to kind of be in touch and talk to each other. And then we eventually decided, I would say, like, after, I want to say a year or so, that we shouldn't be in touch anymore because it just was too sort of torturous. Like, we were, I think we had only grown more in love with each other as the years went by. Like, sometimes people grow apart, you know, friends grow apart, mm-hmm. but we had kind of grown in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, I think neither of us, we both are kind of very moral, maybe like socially conservative people who did not want to have an affair. Uh-huh. He, you know, he didn't want to be the person to break up my marriage and which he ne- he hadn't from the start. He never wanted to be the person to, he never wanted to be responsible uh-huh. for breaking up my marriage. So um, he actually had gotten divorced by this point and his um, ex-wife remarried within like three months of them getting wow. divorced. Yes. And, um, and so he was feeling, you know, there were, we didn't have to worry about that. So we made this decision. This is like Thanksgiving, 2010, that we were not going to have any contact with each other basically. And, um, a year or so later, I guess more than that in March of 2013, I went to Boston for um, what's known in the writing world as AWP, which is uh-huh. the biggest. Um, I know you know this, Ronit. I'm just telling mm-hmm. anyone out there who's not a writer. It's this the biggest kind of like writers convention in the country or maybe the world. And um, you know, somewhere around 14,000 writers converge on a city which I guess means that like a lot of liquor is sold in that city Um, and like for three or four days of panels and readings and parties and stuff. And so I had to go that year. I was on a few panels and um, we, my, my husband and our kids and I actually went together um, because my husband at the time I had actually gotten him a job as an assistant at a literary magazine. And so he was going to man the booth of this literary magazine so our first night there, I was supposed to, he was going to stay with the kids and I was going to go to a party with some friends of mine that an agent I know was hosting. And so I arranged to meet a friend of mine in the lobby bar of the main conference hotel, the Sheraton in Back Bay. And there's a blizzard that night, actually. And so I walked um, into the bar, like covered in ice and snow and drenched and looked for my friend. I kind of scanned the bar. I didn't see her. Um, it was very crowded. And so I walked through the bar looking for her. I kind of did a lap. And then I, when I turned around to face the door again, I saw like the most incredibly handsome, the most, just most attractive man I'd ever seen in my life and was like, Oh my God. And, and then 10 seconds later or less, I was like, wait, that's Kirill. And he was sitting on a couch with actually like a whole group of women. So he was like surrounded by women, like a harem of women. (laughs) And I was like, what is he doing here? Because he's not a writer. You know, he has no Mm -hmm. connections to the literary world at all. Right, right. I was like, why is he here? And then I recognized one of the women that he was with, actually, um, someone I know from New York. And I was like, what? What is happening? This is so strange. And I I felt like I was going to throw up or pass out. Like I was freezing, but I suddenly became drenched in sweat. And <laughs> I thought like, I don't know what to do here. You know, should I talk to him? Like, I, I thought like perhaps he was dating one of the women that he was with. And I that I felt, you know, I hadn't been troubled by his marriage, but that I felt like I couldn't handle. Like, I don't know why right at that moment, I felt like mm-hmm. I can't handle this, like seeing him with a girlfriend. And I was sort of standing there frozen when, of course, he saw me and was like, Joe, what are you doing here? And, you know, he stood up and hugged me and said, you know, how are you doing? And I sort of said, I'm okay. And I said, how are you? And he said, I'm not good. 
you know, and I was surprised because he on paper was good, you know, Mm -hmm. like he's a full professor at MIT. He's a very well-known composer. You know, he, when we parted ways, he had been dating a woman who seemed like the perfect woman for him. Like she's also a kind of well-known composer who does, he really liked her work and she was age appropriate and looked, Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd of course Google stalked her. She looked quite pretty and, you know, just seemed like a cool person. And so part of the reason we had parted ways was because I think we both felt like he couldn't commit to this relationship with her if he was in touch with me. And, Uh and I, you know, I felt that as much as he did. And so I was shocked by this. And I said, you're not. And he said, no, you know, I, I can live without you. But I just can't be happy without you. That's what I've realized. Like, I can live without you, but I can't be happy without you. And I think in that moment, we both knew that this was the end, you know, that we were both done and that we had to somehow return to each other. And so we did. Mm. Wow. I mean, it's just, I don't know, I... You got you two are so magnetic in the telling. You know, I just it feels so star-crossed. And how long, you know, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I'm curious how long it took the wheels to 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 be set in motion for the change in your life and the marriage and the breakup and you know, all that. Well, you know, I saw I ran into him on March 7th and I moved to Cambridge with my kids um, right after school got out. So I think July, June 30th or July 1st of that year, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't take that long. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, the hardest thing, strangely, was actually telling my mother. My father had passed away. Um, mm-hmm. And my mother came to visit me in New York not that long after this. I took her out to lunch and said, I have to tell you something, you know, I'm leaving my husband and, you know, getting back together with Kirill. And she said, Oh my God, thank God. You know, <laughs> And she was like, everyone has been waiting for this. Like everyone that you know has been waiting for this forever. And I was like, really? And she was like, yes, of course. And I oh. thought she was going to judge me so harshly. And and, but she was not at all. Um, she was very excited. You know, my mother is kind of a difficult person, to be honest. But she um, really helped me as much as she could. Um, you know, she's quite elderly, but she did everything she could to help me with with this. And I was pretty shocked. Hmm. I told How did the her, kids take it? The kids were great with it. You know, my husband and I things were pretty bad between us and he you know definitely like had a pretty bad temper and there was a lot of yelling at me (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and also at my son honestly my older child and they you know they sort of took it all really in stride like I'll just back up and explain that Kirill and I came up with this whole plan like Kirill is 
a person who does a lot of research and wants to do everything perfectly and with the least amount of harm, you know, he's mm -hmm. like a Buddhist who meditates and he's just a wonderful person. And so mm -hmm. he decided that what we should do, what he at first decided that he should move to New York. Um, he had a sabbatical coming up and live near us and that I should stay in my apartment with the kids. And he would very slowly get to know, like be introduced into their lives. Mm -hmm. And I talked to my mom about this and she was like, no, no, don't do that. Like, just do it. You know, she was like, he can't move to New York. He has tenure. Like, mm. you should just move to Cambridge. And oh, my God. Just... She's like all about it. Yeah. She was like, oh. just do it. If you're going to do it, just do it. I'm paraphrasing. But she was, you know, she was like, why, why wait? And I thought about what she said and I was like, she's right. You know, why wait? Like life is short. And so we found an apartment in Cambridge and basically I told the kids, usually the kids and I spent the summer someplace outside of New York because it's sort of horrible. We lived on the Lower East Side, which is where my mm. family's from. And it's pretty awful there in the summer. So, yes. Um, so I said, you know, we're going to spend the summer in Cambridge. I signed them up for camp. And we got there and Cambridge is beautiful. And my son actually really hated the Lower East Side. He's a kid mm -hmm. who gets overwhelmed with sensory things really easily. And it just is a very, our neighborhood was quite harsh. And our first day there, we took a walk around and there were flowers everywhere. And it was just beautiful and wonderful. And both kids sort of hugged me and said, thank you for bringing us here. And then they went to camps wow. that they loved. and. They met Kirill and they right away and they loved him and they actually wanted to see him all the time. And it was all okay. Yeah. And so how long have you been married and you had another child? Yes. So we have been together since 2013. We got married the day before Halloween in 2015. So uh -huh. we've been married almost six years and we have a daughter named Izzy who is five and a half. And mm -hmm. he's very cute and very spirited. And <laughs> and and you you have this book now, My Salinger Year, which is, you know, alludes to the man who would become a focal point of your life. And it's it's kind of mysterious and enigmatic that it stays that way, right? Like, you know, this whole time that you wrote the book, the reader doesn't know all the things that are gonna happen to you. And I wonder, you know, this idea that you were writing that book while in your gut, like you knew that your marriage was not good. And as the book was coming out too, I mean, wasn't your marriage, do I have the timeline right? Falling apart at that point or, or not it quite was. yet? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, and in a, there's a way in which the book is almost kind of like a love letter to Kirill. Like I think it mm -hmm. can be viewed that way. Mm -hmm. in, um, and the film too. And, I, I think again, like one of the many, many things that was making the writing of it hard for me was knowing I had to be honest about what happened with Kirill. So facing my own kind of shame about behaving so badly and just messing things up in such a royal way. Mm -hmm. But I was also afraid of writing honestly about him because I thought, you know, anyone that reads this is going to see that I'm, you know, I'm still in love with him. Yeah. And my husband is going to read this and see this. And so, yeah, I turned in the book in 
at the end of 2012. And then I, you know, saw Kirill in Boston a few months later. The book came out about a year after I moved to Cambridge. Um, mm, wow, full circle. Yeah. And yes. you, you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation, you said, just because someone chooses you doesn't mean you should choose them. And, you know, I think it's important. That's really important. And I wonder if you want to just uh, expand on that a little bit as we near the, the last few minutes of our talk. Yeah. I mean, I think this is like, this should be sort of like a meme or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Because I think, you know, and Ronin, I feel like you will understand this because I do think we had really similar experiences as kids. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a way you know, for women specifically, like heterosexual women, in which you do have this idea sometimes that if someone wants you badly enough, you that's enough to kind of change your life and transform you into the kind of magical, perfect being that you feel like you should be. That mm-hmm. the the sort of extreme power of their desire for you is all you need and it can trick you into thinking that you reciprocate it or it can make you feel guilty for not reciprocating it and I wish that someone had said to me when I was you know a little girl or a teenager just because someone wants you doesn't mean that you have to want them and you're going to be in all sorts of situations where people are going to want you and you're not going to want them And um, like my friend Claire calls it the scarcity mentality, like Mm, that you mm -hmm. think, oh, this here's this opportunity. I have to take it. And you don't. You know, I I think that I did not. This is like almost a cliche to talk about. But I think I as a young woman like didn't I walked through the world appearing to seem sort of like buoyant and confident And maybe I was, but I think I, you know, I had been a kind of like unpopular, like kid who didn't fit in. And my husband, like him sort of doing what he did with me, felt kind of like the popular kid choosing me. Mm -hmm. Like you had arrived or something. Yes, exactly. Like the cool Mm -hmm. kid choosing me. Mm -hmm. And I think there are other, a lot of other examples of this in my life, but this is obviously the biggest one that changed my life in really profound ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you think you'll ever write more about your relationship or your love story? I do. Um, You know, I'm writing a long essay about it now for an anthology on desire, Um, It's like women writers on desire. And it's been hard to write. I actually, this is crazy, but I've been working on it. It's just an essay. I've been working on it on and off for a year. And on Monday, Monday being just yesterday, listeners, the editor was like, hey, I really need that essay now. And I was like, okay, I I will have it to you by Friday. And um, it's made me think like maybe there is a whole book in this, like a short book. Uh Right now, I, I have another memoir that, I'm turning in at the end of the year. And right now, the kind of story of Kirill is woven into it. And it it feels a little bit awkward. And part of me wonders, like, could I take, could I just lift that out? And could it be its own book? Yeah, right, 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 right. Because there's so much material. This is just, okay, so we do, I mean, I have to end the interview sometime, but <laughs> I don't want to. And I feel like, 
you you need to come back maybe when the next book comes out and then you need to come back when the book after that comes out and there's just so many questions i have for you and i just love learning about your life and you tell your story so vividly and i just feel like there's tons to learn from you but i do you know i think we'll have to have to have you back because you know i can't i have so many questions where can people best connect with you and find your work etc um well you can find me on Instagram. I'm just Joanna Rakoff. Same thing on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I'm very bad at Twitter, though. Um, but you can. I'm very bad at Twitter too. Ugh, yeah, you. I can... don't understand. I don't either. Um, <laughs> and then, if you want to read like little pieces by me, you can certainly find them in the Times and other places. Um, and um, my books are available wherever books are sold. And the my Salinger Year film is available to stream um pretty much anywhere that you rent movies um it's still you know rentable it's not it will be on netflix eventually but right now you know you can rent it on amazon you know on itunes it's part of the apple tv package um if you're curious about it it stars sigourney weaver and margaret qualley and it's pretty great yeah this is so exciting i think i'm gonna um grab my teenager and we're gonna sit and watch that tonight i can't wait yeah um thank you thank you thank you for being my guest i'm so happy we connected and very pleased that i can share our conversation oh roni thank you so much for having me i love this show i've been slowly working my way back backward through it and it's so <laughs> wonderful um so i'm oh. so excited to be part of it thank you thank you thank you Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.